לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. ברשה. It's a great Parsha, because it's always a great Parsha. It's the beginning of the fourth book. It's in the desert, and there's lots to say about it. I think that, that we're going to focus on, on that in, in a future Parsha talk, especially since, since there are a lot of list material, lists in Bamidbar, including the census and the chieftains and lots of things going on there. And we, we've talked about Bamidbar also as being Uh, the, the book of formation and a politically messy book for the people. So that's been a theme in the past. But, but we want to, with everybody's permission, our viewers, listeners, who we are so delighted with and thankful for, we want to take uh, this time to talk about Shavuot. So I want to put on the table that the holiday of Shavuot is probably the least understood and the most important uh, evolved or or the holiday that's in in the most transition in Judaism and 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 here we're going to say we're going to use this as the the broad proposition that from uh, biblical from the biblical area to now <laughs> let's go let's take the 30,000 foot lo- you know uh, look at 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 this holiday Shavuot in the Bible and Shavuot today. Discuss. Barry, go for it. So Shavuot in the Bible is strictly an agricultural holiday. It is the bringing of the first fruits. And um, that's about all it is. It's not even the Chag in all the texts that we have. Sometimes it's just Yom Bikurim. It's not clear entirely when it is. Sometimes it's when you begin the barley harvest. Sometimes it's 50 days after Pesach or 49 days after Pesach. And there is in it an element of confusion, not only in terms of what to do, but how we can connect it to a figure of speech that we use today, Zaman Matan Tawartani. For us, living long after the early rabbinic period, this is the time of the giving of the Torah. And what I'd like to suggest that the key to Shavuot is actually found in the Mishnah in Pirkei Avot. Moshe Kibel Torah Misinai, which I think in the Mishnah is clear, is both the oral Torah and the written Torah. Those of us who have carefully read the account of the revelation at Sinai in the Torah know it's very difficult to get much past the Ten Commandments, if even that, as a text of revelation, to say nothing of the written Torah. But I think that we have completely subsumed ourselves into the rabbinic understanding of the text, that this is 
the revelation of oral Torah and written Torah. And that's what we discuss. So, so in other words, there, there's a bit of sleight of hand going on here that the rabbis have framed this agricultural holiday almost exclusively in terms of Torah. And, and, and I want to speak to the, 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 the calendrical conundrum, which is that the, the, the way that the calendar unfolds in the Torah itself, it, it almost perfectly aligns with Shavuot, but there's, there's a little bit of fuzziness there. I don't know, Jeremy, you want to pick up that thread or just want to, you know, re relate to something else that Paris said? No, I'm, not, I'm not entirely following the... the I'm saying that, that if, you, if, you put, if you put the text under a magnifying glass, you really have to, to uh, work very hard to make all the dates line up with, with uh, Shavuot and, and Matan Torah. That the Matan Torah revelation story which we, we, we affirm through tradition happened on Shavuot, uh, it's not that clear that it's, that it's actually seven weeks to the day. You know, and, and even within the Torah itself, there's, there's just, you know, how do you count this day and when do you count the day and, and, and how do you count the Omer, etc. Um, and, and everything, every, all of that is left to the, to the weight of, well, this is the holiday of Matan Torah, and therefore, you know, the contemporary celebration, commemoration of, of Shavuot focuses almost completely on the theme of Torah, almost completely on the theme of the rabbinic tradition, and almost completely on the theme of the reenactment of the Beit Midrash through the Tikkun Nel Shavuot, which is admittedly one of the, the most, uh, one of the latest developments within Judaism that is late within the last 300 years, 200 years, and certainly has become popular in the last 50 years. The, uh, just the, um, a little bit of Kabbalistic uh, hoo-ha about the Tikkun Lel Shavuot. It is in, you know, Midrashic literature that one ought to do such things, but, um, you know, and certainly in the Zohar, it is a huge big deal, but people didn't do it, uh, there's a, a academic article about the introduction of coffee from the yeah. Near East, which which enabled people to have more nocturnal rituals and stuff like that. But Rav Yosef Karo and Shlomo Halevi Alkabetz, um, uh, they actually in the 1530s, uh, you know, sort of initiated like they actually did it in the 1530s. So it's been. It's been already like more than four hundred years. You know what? For, you know how 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 big is it for a Kabbalist to stay up all night? I mean, seriously. well, so Rav Yosef Karo's his particular gig, I kid you not, was that he would work himself into a trance, reciting lar large amounts of Mishnah very fast, and and Mishnah because because the the Shekhinah, the feminine presence of God, is is symbolized in the oral Torah. He would recite, he would work himself into a trance, he would recite large amounts of Mishnah, and the Mishnah began to speak from within his throat. The, 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 the angelic, or like the Shekhinah, essentially, began to speak from within his own throat. Yeah. And that's the, that's the account of this historic uh, Tikkun Lel Shavuot of 1531 or two, or whatever year it was. And you can read about it all in, in, the, in the book uh, written by... Uh, Svi Verblovsky about Reverser Caro with the memorable title of Joseph Caro, Lawyer and Mystic. There you go. There you go. It reminds me of the other 
article you quoted, the prosaic article of Moshe Greenberg. <laughs> no, you're a mystic. So, but, so, you know, so you were talking about the, the, um, the, uh, you know, the, that it has become entirely, you know, a Torah holiday, a rabbinic holiday. Um, it's all about reenacting Sinai. It's, it's, and with which I, of course, completely agree. Um, I believe, though, that kibbutz people, agricultural people, the chalutzim, they also made a big deal of Shabuot um, when, you know, when, when agricultural life in Israel was younger and fresher and people were, were you know, having a sense of, of new, new forms for their attachment to Judaism. Um, but it, it isn't really for us, although what, one of the things that we do is read a book with an agricultural theme. Yes. Okay. So we'll talk about Before that. Before we get to the book, I just want to suggest one other thing that in the Bible, Shavuot does have a text that goes with it. And it's the Parshat Bikurim, that the farmer that's mentioned in the, near the end of Sefer Devarim, which is the farmer brings his first fruits to the priest and declares that he was, his father was a wandering Aramean. And the first fruits become the culmination of God's promise to the Israelites that he would bring them to their land. And so I suspect that Shavuot takes its Sinai Matan Torah form in the wake of the destruction of the temple when that no longer can operate as before. And so we push back Shavuot from a culmination of God, the living proof of God's promise to the Israelites to an event that happened before the Israelites ever got to Israel, which was the revelation at Mount Sinai. Okay. Uh, and one more thing about Shavuot, which, you know, like, is this in is this in the Torah that it is simply called, or is this rabbinic that it is simply called Atzeret? I think it's in the Torah as well. So Sukkot begins with Sukkot, then it's closed off with Shmini Atzeret, and that's like a a holiday period of eight days. Shavuot is also called Atzeret, and and it's the closed parentheses to what to Passover. It's a long period of fifty days. So Passover begins a kind of agricultural uh, sacred time, and that lasts until Shavuot, which, uh, you know, is like if, if, if at one point the Torah says that, that, that it never really says that Passover is the barley harvest, but it says that, that uh, Shavuot is the wheat harvest. So it's like high summer, it's the, it's the katsir of it's the harvest festival of of like you know now now your plants are really growing now you're now you have right now you have uh, abundant food. Well, that's the, the rainy season is over, and now now the water is is you know in in the system, uh, in the irrigation system, or in simply in the ground, and and this period of time between Passover and Shavuot is the is the period of time, which is the most fragile for uh, food production in 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 the land of Israel. Uh, because it's during this time that, that all the important processes that happen with food production, namely germination, fertilization, etc., are happening, and the fruits are beginning, and the, the you know the the flowers are the, well you know of of the of the trees would be um, uh, developing their fruit. But I want to I want to propose a, another another thought way that that's I think hidden within the text. Um, and and I think has a, a powerful resonance, and that is food. That that Shavuot is a food festival in the sense that it's Bikurim first fruits, and until you get into the land, uh, 
the food that Israel eats is provided by God, namely in the form of manna. And that the manna, which appears daily in the morning, is collected, a double portion on Friday for Shabbat. And the manna itself has this kind of, you know, white, tasty, flaky, uh, sweet um, uh, taste, apparently. And that uh, once they get into the land, the manna stops. And so there, there needs to be a kind of commemoration of, of this, and that Shavuot functions um, in, in, in the traditional and even in the folk imagination as a, a deep reenactment of mana because of the preponderance of dairy. Dairy on so Shavuot. That would explain the cheesecake you know, from the land of milk and honey. Exactly, exactly. That it replaces the mana. Yeah, and, and I, I don't think, it, you know, and we're saying it with a bit of tongue-in-cheek, but I think there's something there. There's, I, I think the, the food insecurity of the people of Israel in the desert, and namely their, their total dependence on God for food, uh, and then the total reliance on their own work, and the, the dignity that comes from that, and the, the possibility that in the bringing of the first fruit, the person is going to think, well, I did this all, and... and it, the 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 whole first fruits fruits declaration is um, a declaration that you are here because of of a divine plan, um, and so and so Shavuot really reflects on some level um, the history, the agricultural and food history of the people of Israel. And here, I mean, you know, it's you know the the the, the homily is of course what's the food? The food is Torah. The Torah, you know, replaces mana mana, you know sustained the people in Torah sustains us and all that you know works very very nicely but but um, I think and just let's talk for a second about the contemporary celebration because you know our experience of Shavuot I mean I can go back to to when I was a kid the first uh, major experiences of, of learning I think I, I, I had were on Shavuot it was very very exciting as a young as a teen to, to go to a tikkun and to stay up all night it was a big thing that that some of us did, and and did it for for years, um, and 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 it's only the the experience of the tikkun has only grown over the decades, and um, has gotten much more creative and complex. And and in Israel, for example, there there is the whole phenomenon of the the secular tikkun that that secular Israelis join with either religious or on their own in secular institutions, and they study study text or they you know you can study an amichai poem i mean you know torah in the broadest sense is is what you do and and so I, you know jeremy i'll ask you i mean amichai, yuda amichai the israeli poet you know would you devote 45 minutes of a tikkun to yuda Chaimi poem and call that torah oh yeah easily sure. I, I mean i you know easily because because he's constantly making references and constantly connecting and 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 you know, you are in the study of text, you are saying it, nothing is outside of the boundary, really, I guess. I mean, there is there is some boundary. I don't know if we put the show. I mean, uh, obviously, there does have to be, you know, not not everything is Torah with a capital top, so, so to speak, yeah. right? Like, uh, um, but the Jewish people's, you know, journey to make Jewish life meaningful to, to me, like that's that's the that's the most capacious kind of 
definition of Torah, right? If, 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 you know, I, not I've ever read any Batya Gore books, but I know that she's, she's like a mystery writer. I yeah, don't think that's it. probably not Torah, but, but, but Amichai's Torah and, and, and Agnon is Torah because they are about what is this inheritance and how we, how we passed it on. Well, Leonard Cohen, would you study a Leonard Cohen poem? It depends. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but not Woody Allen. Not Woody Allen. Okay, so so we have our canon, you know, and we and and we would be as as broad as possible in in saying what I don't, I wouldn't call it what's a sacred text, but what's a text that can illuminate a theme, and I could certainly so, go to Leonard Cohen for that. I could go to dozens of other poets for that. So what you're saying, I think, Elliot, is that Torah in the modern period has become the text of the Jewish people. And whatever we regard as a text exactly. is worthy of study as Torah, even if it's not necessarily sacred as we think of the Torah Shabbat or the Torah Shabbat Pet. Look, I think we would know, you know, what to, what to, we're not quote unquote canonizing anything, but we're saying, we're, what we're saying is, what do we take seriously as, as, as text? And, you know, Elliot, and, you, you, have, you have said very memorably at Passover, you know, all the symbols of the Seder, you are the most important, important symbol, right? yeah. person. And and I think that's very, very touching, very powerful. And, and and I think that, you know, there's an analogous kind of question that you could you could ask, what is the what is the sort of text that you bring to Shavuot to study the Torah? And it isn't infinite. It, it isn't, you know, uh, anything that anybody would ever say in Hebrew. Um, it isn't you know, necessarily whatever, you know, sitcom or, or found of, I don't know, maybe found of, I, I don't know. But, has uh, there, I, I, there are a couple of Jewish elements. Stissel. Stissel but, for sure. but I think, but I think that the, that the, the question of if, if we as Jews and a Jewish community and, and for us in the United States and the English speaking world, that's one sort of, sort of vantage on it, but Israelis and their vantage on it, um, if, if it is a text that is addressing the question of what does Jewish existence, Jewish history mean, then, then I think that, yes, that's the, that's so, the, the symbol that, that belongs on the Beit HaMidrash for Shavuot. Okay. I want to add something here, and I think it makes an important theological point, because we're used to thinking of revelation as being a one-way process from God to the people. And I think that by including Amichai Cohen and some of the other people that we've mentioned, this is the human response to revelation. And that, and it's important, I think, especially for us as conservative rabbis, that we recognize that there is a human dimension to revelation. It's not strictly a one-way flow from God to us. I, on that point, you know, I've often felt, and never actually successfully done it, but, um, you know, we, we, those of us who, uh, <laughs> you know, like struggle to make the second day meaningful so make the second seder meaningful make the second day of sukkot meaningful whatever i think the shavuot is a little bit of a hard hard thing because 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 of the one-way side the first day feels like this this is this is the day that god spoke all these words and we think i would love to have the first day of of shavuot be dedicated to to torah shavichtav and the sense of the god gave us a torah and the second day of shavuot dedicated to torah shabbat that we respond 
with the Torah that we give back to God. God gives us a Torah and we give God a Torah. And that would make the second day really meaningful. That said, I've never successfully pulled it off in the shul to sort of like program around a theme like that. Uh, yeah, because it's a beautiful idea. I, I, it's a, it is a gorgeous idea, but, but you know, the debating person in me is saying like, well, there's no Torah Shebikhtav without Torah Shebaal Like Maimonides said in the opening of the, of uh, the, the Yad Chazakah, the, the Mishnah Torah, he said, you can't, you can't have one without the other. I mean, you know, what would you do? Would you, would you, you know, put out a, t- I, I, recently I was, I was going over the Song of the Sea, okay? Complicated, complicated text. And, and, you know, you can't, you can't study that or any text without some kind of apparatus, some kind of, you know, assistance. I mean, we, we are lucky, I think, and, and I'm here, I'm referring to the three of us who represent a certain strain within within contemporary Judaism that we don't have any problem pulling out comparative literature, comparative lingual languages, ancient religions, and historical precedents, and and the whole whatever tool we can to 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 understand the text we will we will use to our at our disposal, plus the whole the whole tradition of Torah Shabbat evoked through the rabbis. Um, so you know, would, are you saying would you devote one day to pshat and another day to drash? <laughs> well, so of, of course it is true that there's no such thing as an uninterpreted text, um, and and uh, you know I, I don't I don't disagree with that. The the, the halachic tradition says you know it, it's it's not the Torah quote unquote unamplified. It's only amplified. It's only as it's refracted through. Our authoritative tradition—that's absolutely true. But it's also true that um, the written Torah we treat it differently. Uh, it has a different ritual role, and the, so to speak, the drash is that it's it's from beyond the human realm. Now, I, I don't exactly believe that that's factually true, um, but there's a there's a way of looking at the Torah that this is that this is from heaven. But there is a way of looking at Torah Shabbat Peh, the oral Torah. And I know, of course, that the tradition is, oh, you know, the oral Torah was also given to Moses. But it is manifestly true that Abaye and Rava and Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yehuda are the speakers of the, of the, of the, uh, of the oral Torah. And so the vibe, the, the, the way we relate to the oral Torah, I feel, I feel, to tell you the truth, I feel much more at home. Uh, with the rabbis than I do with the Tanakh. Um, I feel like the rabbis, even though we're, you know, 1,500 years from them, between 1,500 and 2,000 years from them, I feel like they and I have one thing in common. We are both the inheritors of a sacred book that we have to interpret. And and I feel like that, that you know, we, we don't do it in the exact same way, but we have the same uh, uh, process that is foisted upon us. I feel, I feel... Sometimes, and I think I'm in this kind of zone right now, where where studying the Tanakh is like going to one continent, and studying the Chazal, studying the Rabbis is like being in another continent. It's, it's a totally different approach, and and you know I, I have this image of commuting between continents because you know of travel and the you know the longing to do that, and I do that. I'm going to be doing that, and and it's thing like like you can become immersed in that world, and what I you know. What I love about both is that you can you can really inhabit those those worlds, 
we, you know, we work uh, every, you know, all the, all the time in our Parsha talks on the Parsha, trying to understand it to get into that world. And we, we uh, augment it with uh, the rabbinic voices, you know, but, but I, you know, like, like stepping out of the Bible world and into the world of the Talmud, it's, it's a different world. It's a different. Well, what I would suggest is what makes it different is it's a different kind of music. Yeah. Right. Torah has one kind of music, the trop that we're all familiar with. And Torah Shavuot has its own music, which is different. You know, whether it's that yeshiva sing song or whatever tune that we happen to give it, we don't sing it in the same way that we sing the well, Torah Shavuot. I, I would understand that metaphorically, you know, the same way that you understand classical or romantic or even jazz. Right. They're different idioms. They're different. They're different. They come with different rules. Right, but sometimes one speaks to you more than the other. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. You need them all. You can't you know, focus on just one forever. All right, let's take two seconds to talk about Ruth, and she deserves more than two seconds. Oh, she deserves, she deserves a lot she more than so much. So I, I, you know, I want to put out, this, this book is a book about strong and important women. Of course, the two women, Ruth and Naomi, at the beginning of the book, but, but you also have Orpah, and you 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 have echoes in the book of of a whole matriarchal tradition and and um, I mean, what's your take on the book of Ruth? How would you, you know, what do you, what would you want people to find in the book of Ruth? And what would you want people to to take away? I mean, we did that, you know, when we read the book of Esther, uh, we we just you know did random verses. I wouldn't want to do that with Ruth because it's a different kind of book altogether, and the and the atmosphere in reading it is, is, is I guess, slightly more reverent. Um, but, but we have listeners, we have people who watch this. What do you want them to know about Ruth or the book of Ruth? And what do you By want the way, to- you know, I, I, um, we, we talked about the way that Esther, which, of course, is, is a different sort of farce and, and a different vibe, quite, quite correctly said, but you know, Esther is, there's a lot of sex in Esther. And uh, there is. Why it's longer. That's <laughs> much, much longer. It's, it's the Gansa Megillah. But um, uh, there is, uh, um, there is in Ruth too, a little bit. I mean, not only, of course, the fact that she ultimately gets married and has. has well, she uh, takes it, the, the, the blanket off his toes. She, yeah, they're not his toes. It's his, it's his. <laughs> It's his feet. Ruth, Ruth goes, Boaz is sleeping in the threshing floor, and she goes down and sleeps, sleeps next to him. He sleeps uncover, next to him. Uncovers his feet. It's... And he, he wakes up to discover something's going on there. I mean, like, this, this is also a... Uh, but but that, that is, you know, Elliot, you pointed out, of course, correctly, that this is a female-driven story. It's a female-driven story in terms of... of uh, the leadership of Ruth and Naomi and the, I, I, not that one would blame Orpah, whose name, by the way, means the back of the neck. Like it's, it seems like a little pun is going on. Sure. She's not Oprah. Uh, she's Orpah. Oprah or Ofra would be the, the fawn or the deer, but there's a little play with her name that she is from Ofra to Oprah to Orpah. She turns the back of the neck. She heads back to her home. It's not like you could blame her what Naomi says is correct. You got no prospect coming back with me. Just go to your own kin's people. And she says, okay. Um, but Ruth and Naomi are, are uh, powerful figures driving the story. 
Ruth's chesed, her loyalty, her devotion drives the story. But like so many, um, uh, and there's a kind of a Greek chorus of women back in Bethlehem uh, that Naomi speaks to, and 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 there's a, a, a blessing, you know, that they bless uh, them to be like like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. Pretty powerful verse. But there's a, a, a pattern that we get in a lot of stories, and, and it's true in this one in spades, that um, apparently powerless figures, apparently marginal figures, actually turn out to have, have great power unexpectedly. Uh, the, the, the thing that you maybe dis despise, Ruth is poor, she's not of Israelite stock, She's Moabite. She went off and she's a widow and like everything bad. But lo and behold, through her resourcefulness, and I do think that the sexual overture towards Boaz is, I think that the book is saying, you know, well done, um, um, you know, turns out to drive a redemptive story, which, as, as we know, will end up, she's one of the progenitors of David Amalek. Yeah. Barry, your your take. Your, what do you what, what do you want people to take away from? So I, I think there are two things that speak to me. The first one is the theme of loyalty, which Jeremy suggested was one of the hallmarks of the book, and it's an incredibly important theme for us as religious people. And I wonder sometimes if we don't explore that theme enough. Um, you know, what we think of as faith in biblical Hebrew and rabbinic Hebrew really is trust, which also has an element of loyalty to it. And I think one of the problems that we have in the modern world is the notion that we can't quite trust God or know how to trust God. And if we could recover that, we might affect uh, an important religious revolution. But the other thing I would say is that what is so surprising about Ruth is that if I remember correctly, it's only 85 verses. Yeah. It is one of the shortest books in the Torah and the Tanakh. And the way we talk about it as if, it's a novel, not a very short story, because there is so much depth to the book. And there are so many things in it that are packed in, you know, in the very concrete in Hebrew. And we, we have to remember that. So it's amazing that you got that. You, you got that. The chapters are 22, 23. 18, was it 22 and 23 is 45, 18, we're down to 63, and then 22, 85 verses, well done. Yeah, so so I mean, there is a bit of inversion going on in the book of Ruth with, I, I think the, the maternal, the mother-in-law, daughter-in-law relationship between Naomi and Ruth, which echoes a kind of the father-son relationship of Shaul and Yonatan, there's that death will not divide us. And that, that phrase appears with David and Yonatan, who died on the same day, basically. Death will not separate us. She says, Ruth says, I will, you know, on, only death will, will be our, se separate us from each other. But I want to say, you know, with regard to the, the brevity of Ruth and, and its depth, that uh, one of the takeaways that I would suggest for people watching and listening is joy. That, that um, first of all, the story is, is such a rich and beautiful story. It's an amazing story. Second of all, 
it's it's an it's an exercise if you read even just the first six verses the first six verses if you if you examine them and ask the questions on them what does that tell us you know this was the day in the days of the judges and what does that mean what's the world it's taking us to a certain world and and already the story invites us to this imagination and celebrate it's the celebration is is the imagination of that world. We're going into their world. We're going into loss. We're going into despair. We're going into famine. We're going into loneliness. We're going where the, the feeling of tremendous bitterness that your life has been crushed. It's it's amazing. Such it's so uplifting. <laughs> these these beautiful, depressing themes, which of course they all come out of. And then at the end, it's hard for me not to read the last paragraph getting a little bit of a chill which is and the chill i have to act like what what's that about why 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 do we feel emotional well it is the ancestry of david but that's it's it's not only about that it's like this is the story like all great biblical stories everything hinges on this you know you think about you know back in brashit the the story of joseph so so the story of joseph hinges on the wayward wanderer who tells Joseph where to go and see his brothers. You know, all Jewish history hinges on that moment. Or the, the story of, of Rebecca, where she says, uh, they say to her, are you going to go with them? And he, she says, yeah, I'm going to go. One word, elech, right? So you can say all of Jewish history hinges on, on her decision. And, and the, you know, of course, in retrospect, we read these stories and you think everything depends on everything else. And here... The Davidic household depended on kindness. That that the future of the house of Israel, that the kingdom of Israel, as messy and as ugly as it got at certain points, but this people became a people, and it became a people because of a foreigner who came in, who now is the paradigm for all people converting to Judaism, because of her kindness. And because the promise that even someone who enters into the fold, into the people of, of Israel, has the potential to bring forth the Messiah. On that, on that point, the, uh, without being, um, you know, like uh, contrived to talk about contemporary issues, um, we have such a strong tradition. You know, Hillel is, is supposed to have descended from converts, and Rabbi Akiva is supposed to have descended from from converts um and the affirmation that ruth you know uh comes from moab which by the way in the bible just the presence of moab they are cousins because they are from lot but not in a nice way no. and um and so th there is an affirmation like what i was saying before about the marginal or the despised turn out to be the agents of, of redemption and salvation I think it's big, but I also think that the self-conception of the Israelite people who would tell this story is a reminder, uh, you know, uh, we who, um, it's, it's all too easy for us, you know, to, to say, uh, you know, the immigrants, blah, blah, blah. I mean, there's a, there's a I mean, I'm thinking of a white stripe song. Why, why not? You know, kick yourself out. You're an immigrant, too. Okay, like there's a way in which we have a we have of of looking at at what we countries can sometimes have looking at outsiders and say you don't belong here. And this book comes this Sefer Ruth Megillat Ruth 
comes along and says, yeah, slow down on the throwing out the immigrants thing, because um, if you if you don't find a place for this particular Moabite, uh, then you're in trouble. Indeed. Wow. Right. So I think the point that could be emphasized that this ultimately is a book about people. It's not about land and it's not about rules per se. And so at the very end, when the nearer kinsman has the chance to get the land, which is valuable, he's told he has to marry Ruth in order to get the land and that he refuses. And Bo, part of Boaz's zahut is that he is willing to both marry Ruth and take the land. And you know, one of the things that we forget, not only in the discussion about immigration in this country, is we're talking about people, you know, that are flesh and blood that are just like we are. And we can't lose sight of that. This is such a way, a great way to kind of bring our conversation to a close here, because, you know, in a way we're talking about people, we're talking about Am Yisrael and Am Yisrael and Kla Yisrael's relationship to the Torah. Each one of the holidays has a different focus. You could say that Passover is the focus on the family and Sukkot is the focus on the community. And Shavuot is really the focus on the Beit Midrash, the, 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 the way that the conversation of Torah in the broadest sense uh, takes place. And, and our little conversation here is just an example of that. And we are so happy and thankful that you have chosen to be with us for the last 35 minutes uh, and share this conversation. Uh, we wish you all a good Shabbos and, of course, uh, Chag Sameach, Chag Sameach, Happy Shavuot. I look forward to seeing you again in the next edition of Parshat Shalom. Shalom, Chag Sameach.